BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Welcome to another edition of the Five Reasons Podcast. My name is Chris Whittingham, joined as always by Ethan Skolnick. And Ethan, we're entering the All-Star break now. We are officially there after the Lakers and the Timberwolves play the last game in the pre-All-Star break. And so we are now digging into what is left to be done in the regular season. We cover the Eastern Conference on our Wednesday pod. You can check it out. And Ethan, now let's dig into the Western Conference. And we must start with the defending champion Golden State Warriors and it's kind of odd what constitutes a crisis for them but they're six and four in their last 10 games and so (laughs) we must freak out and and starting with our five reasons the Western Conference will be interesting in the post all-star break era to you is this anything to be long-term freaked out about or are they just bored I think they're just bored I you know you look at their roster right now we can talk about some of the differences on the bench compared to what they've had in previous years although they're they're two primary guys off the bench and Iguodala and Livingston are the same but but I I look at it and I I just say they're bored at this stage I mean their net rating is still first in the league uh, at plus 10 per game you look at some of their other metrics right now I mean as far as their assist percentage far and away the best in the NBA so they're still moving the ball it's not like they've gotten selfish Um, you know it's not even close in terms of that compared to other teams so I don't think we've seen any of the sort of disease of me stuff creep in there the stuff that Pat Riley talks about with dynasties and, and what happens to teams once they start to have success and everybody's sort of out for their own I don't think you've seen that with the Warriors there doesn't seem to be any sign of friction between Curry and Durant, Draymond Green is still doing a lot of the little things that he used to do. Clay Thompson, you know, has recently come out and said or made it clear that he wants to stay in Golden State for the long term as opposed to having his own team. So I think as far as their top four players, we really haven't seen the type of friction that that sort of signals the end of a dynasty or a mini dynasty. I mean, you look at what happened say, to the Heat in 2013-14, some of the stuff was bubbling under the surface at that stage. They changed the mix off the bench a little bit. And clearly, being around that team, some of the guys, even the guys who were really close previously, had just gotten a little tired of each other. They got tired of the head coach. They got tired of Riley's rules. Not being around this Warriors team, I can't speak to it as specifically, but, but it just doesn't appear from afar, Chris, that those things have happened. And I think you know, Steve Kerr stepping in the other day, and I know it got a little bit of criticism from Jared Dudley and others with the Suns, but, but allowing the players to run the huddles, I, I mean, he, it seems like he's just searching for something to keep them interested the rest of the way. I don't think anything has changed with the Warriors, per se. I think the only difference this year as opposed to previous years, and we'll get into this with our second reason, is that there is a appears to be a legitimate 
contender in the Western Conference that has been able to sustain things uh, and I think it poses a more serious threat than even some of the better Spurs teams we've seen in recent years, and that team is the Rockets. So we'll touch on them in a second. But I think that's the only thing that's changed. I don't think anything is, has really changed uh, with the Warriors per se. I think very often in media we talk about biases, that fans in particular like to see biases in places where perhaps there isn't any. For me, the one place that you can actually accuse the media of having a bias is in wanting something to happen, right? So I think there is a desire to want the Golden State Warriors to be vulnerable in some way. Otherwise, the NBA season just kind of feels like an inevitable march towards them winning another championship and them continuing a dominance over the NBA that just frankly is uninteresting. And there is no other way around it. I frankly, as a consumer, am not even interested in watching Warriors games anymore. And I love the Golden State Warriors because they have taken a collaboration of talent and turn it into the most aesthetically pleasing basketball that we've ever seen in the NBA in terms of athleticism, in terms of shooting, in terms of sharing the basketball. They are the best possible version of a great basketball team in terms of what it could be stylistically for the fan. However, I just think that there is a desire to see this team be vulnerable in some way. But you mentioned some of the vital signs, the assist percentage. 70% of their baskets are assisted. That is an insane figure. The only thing that is even close to near the bottom of the league is turnover percentage. They're 29th mm -hmm. in the league in turnover percentage, and that would kind of lead you to believe that there is a lack of caring. Now, can there be sort of details? Maybe opponents have played the Warriors so often that they know how to take advantage of their kind of lackluster passing or when they're passing isn't totally crisp, sure, they, they take some chances. But I do think that this conversation is about us wanting there to be something happening with the Warriors rather than it actually happening. If they were really lollygagging up and down the floor, it would reflect in their pace, Chris. And, mm -hmm. and they're right now they're second in the league in pace. So, so they're still playing right. at a high level in that regard. They're first in the league in effective field goal percentage. They're first in the league in true shooting percentage. I mean, again, looking at all of the numbers – there's really not one that stands out to you where you see the slippage. And, and again, you look at what happened with the Heat in that fourth year uh, with LeBron. You know, you saw it in their defensive rating and how they slipped out of the top 10 and were pretty much out of the top 10 all year. Well, the Warriors right now are, are fifth in defensive rating, which is they vacillated between first and fifth during this run. So so I don't see the slippage. I know there have been certain games. The game against Utah is one that sticks out. There have been certain games that have sort of jumped out as, okay, these guys just didn't come to play tonight. And you're going to have that over the course of a long season. I wouldn't worry that much about their bench. I, I just think that Steve Kerr is going to have to tighten it a little bit more in the playoffs than he has in past years where we've seen him go you know, as deep as 10 or 11 in some of these playoff games. I, I don't know that you necessarily do that this time. Maybe you lean on Iguodala and Livingston a little bit more than you have, but you still have those two pieces. I think they're going to be fine. I, I think, again, the only issue for them is that there's a team that is challenging them in the regular season because last year, as well as the Spurs played, and the Spurs played, thanks to Popovich, I think well over the talent level of that roster, you know, the Spurs were never really in striking distance to get the number one seed. Golden State sort of always had them at least three or four games behind them. That has not been the case this year, and you have a legitimate 
legitimate threat to get the number one spot. And look, if the Warriors don't get the number one spot, are they capable of, of winning games on the road? I think we've seen that in the postseason that they can do that. Clearly, they wouldn't want to have to be you know the road team in a, in a Western Conference Finals. But I don't know that it would hurt them that much. And then you get to the finals, you know, it's pretty clear that they would have a, a better record than the team that comes out of the East. So they would still have home court advantage in the finals, provided that they get past Houston in the West. When you start to, again, nitpick them, nothing jumps out to me. I, I, I think they probably still get the number one seed this year, but, but if they don't, I don't think it's the biggest deal in the world. Right. To me, the only thing is that because of the fact that they've been going to the finals for, for now a fourth straight year, they just kind of look at times like they need a vacation. And, and that would be, if we're talking about the disease of me, I don't think it's really necessarily that. I think it's, we saw in year four with the Heat just how tired they were in that last year. They were just exhausted of playing in these big games and being under constant pressure. We've seen that aspect kind of wear on them a little bit, but I think come playoff time, they'll be fine. Let's move now to that threat, because I think the Houston Rockets present the biggest and best threat to the Golden State Warriors, even in the year in which they lost to the Cleveland Cavaliers in the finals. I don't think people viewed the Cavs as the threat that these Rockets are because I think people were hugely shocked by what ended up happening in those finals when the Cavs came back from 3-1 down. And obviously that that finals and that series has been talked about a bunch. But in terms of what the prospect of the Rockets are, sitting right now when James Harden, Chris Paul, and Clint Capella all are playing at the same time, they are 28-1, and one, and they're plus 115 as a three-man lineup. So the Houston Rockets, because of their three-point shooting, because of their offensive prowess, and frankly, underrated what they figured out on the defensive end of the floor, they have become a really good defensive team, and they present that all-around attack, that all-around balance of a great team, and I think they really are the most legitimate threat. But do you believe in James Harden, who's wilted in playoffs, Chris Paul, who has this sort of hoodoo of not getting to the to, to the Western Conference Finals over the course of his career. Do you actually believe them to be this threat? Yeah, I think that's the thing that's holding people back on the Rockets right now is is the playoff or the perceived playoff failures of their top two players. And, and I think we have to look at those two separately. Um, I think James Harden has been rightly criticized in that sense at times for his play and you go all the way back to his play as the sixth man for the thunder in the finals against the heat um back i guess we, we're going all the way back now to what 2012 i yeah. guess it would be mm -hmm. and you know and when he was terrible in that series and then he's he's kind of been hit or miss depending on the series and the opponent since then even since he's gotten his own team in Houston. So I think some of that criticism of Harden has been warranted. Whereas I think with Chris Paul, it's been a little unfair. If you look at his numbers, the way that he's played in a lot of those series that the Clippers lost, you go back to his time in New Orleans. In a lot of those cases, Chris Paul was the only guy playing well. I don't know that it necessarily was his fault that that Clippers team didn't get to the next step. And, and if you remember the year that they beat San Antonio with Chris Paul on a bad ankle, how well, how well Paul played in that series. So I, I know, but, but it's I think, but I think ironically enough, that next series, when Los Angeles lost to Houston is kind of a black mark on both of their careers because the Clippers blew a three, one lead, but that Houston team remember really emerged in game five, which was the clinching game for the Clippers. When James Harden went to the bench and looked like he was sulking mm -hmm. and looked like he was quitting. And so in, in kind of a weird respect, that's the turning point of their careers. 
Yeah, and, and it is strange that it that it played out that way. I, but again, I look at Chris Paul's this year, and I think he's set up to have a great postseason. He's only playing 31 minutes a game. So, I mean, he's he's basically resting one-third of the game this year. You know, he missed some time with injury, which has been a consistent pattern in his career, but, but I think that actually helps him down the stretch here. There won't be quite as much of a burden on him. And their offensive rating, I mean, you're talking how well, how well they've played with those three guys playing together, Paul, Harden, and Capella. Chris Paul's offensive rating this year is 117. I mean, that's insane. Th- th- yeah, that that's outrageous. Um, I mean, he's a net plus 13.7 for the year. And any question about how those two guys would work together, I think, has been put aside to this point. You know, both of them have proven that they can play off the ball. And then D'Antoni's done a really good job of staggering them and allowing them each to run a unit and adding the pieces that they've added. So I think, you know, look, as you, you look at the two of them, I, I think they're going to be just fine. Also, you know, Chris Paul is a guy, he's not the defender he used to be, but at least he's somebody you can put on Curry in a playoff series. A lot of point guards, that's not the case. And and Harden defensively, look, he's never going to be great, but I think he's gotten to the point where, you know, he's at least average for stretches. And, and so that, that certainly helps. The other thing, Chris, is they, they've done, you know, a really good job of and Daryl Morey, you know, tends to do this. They've done a really good job of sort of filling out the team with useful players. And they have a lot of them now. And, and you know, you look at you know, Bamute and what he's done. His defensive rating right now is ninety eight point five, which is is by far best on the team. They can use him on a number of different players. He's versatile. And then P.J. Tucker who's always been one of my favorite role guys in the league. And, you know, he's playing 28 minutes a game for them. And another guy that you can put on, you know, you can put on offensive players at a couple of different positions and you know, he's going to give you honest effort there. He's going to make guys work. So they have a couple of role guys there that have been really effective. And then now they've added a couple of more uh, in, in Joe Johnson, Brandon Wright. And then, you know, you add in the two shooters that they have in Anderson and Gordon. So they have a little bit of everything I think it ultimately comes down, Chris, to what you think of, of Harden in a playoff series and whether he, he can live up to sort of the MVP billing that, that he's gotten at this point. I, I think the, the, the biggest difference in terms of if you're comparing what Chris Paul and James Harden have been over the course of their careers or you're trying to analyze them, to me they've never really had a player like each other. Now obviously Harden when he was the sixth man in Oklahoma City, but I'm kind of talking about in the post-trade world in terms of since James Harden has gone to Houston, he's never really had a Chris Paul, and Chris Paul's never really had a James Harden. So when you look at their teams over the course of time, yeah, Chris Paul played with a player like Austin Rivers, but Austin Rivers isn't close to what James Harden is. And so I really do think, at the very least, they get to share some of the burden. I think what happened to Houston last year, in the playoffs when they lost in the second round was James Harden just completely broke down. He was mentally and physically fried. And I think we've seen that happen with Chris Paul before. Just the fact that they have the ability to lean on each other. All right, you take these three minutes. I'm tired. Even if I go stand on the corner or if I can go to the bench, I know I'm in comfortable hands leaving the team with somebody else, that being Chris Paul or or for Chris Paul, it's James Harden. I really do think that ability, even if they're not necessarily compatible skill sets, we saw in my 
Miami with Dwayne Wade and LeBron James. Those aren't necessarily compatible skill sets, but at the very least, I have some comfort knowing I can go to the bench and we'll survive for these next few minutes, as you mentioned, with this supporting cast that really does fill out well in terms of the totality of roles that you need on an NBA team. Luka Mbamute, who has at the very least figured out a decent enough corner three to survive on the offensive end of the floor. I imagine in a series with Golden State, they'll really test him by leaving him open, kind of pulling one of those, guarding him with Andrew Bogut kind of tactics like they did with Tony Allen. But if he can hit enough corner threes, that can work. My only trepidation right now is, yes, you talked about all these players that are either coming off the bench or starting alongside Harden and Paul. When you compare four primary scorers, ball handlers, playmakers with Houston's two, does Houston have enough firepower to over seven games beat the Golden State Warriors? But to me, the great equalizer is the number of threes that this team takes and can mm. they sort of math their way to the finals, which is a, a weird way of saying it, but they take 42.83s <laughs> per game when you compare. I mean, Golden State, who are this incredible, prodigious shooting team, they take 29.8. They take 13 threes per game less. So can they math their way with just the sheer volume of threes that they take into a series victory over the course of four out of seven games? I wouldn't rule it out. It's really remarkable when you look at that three-point number um, and just how much more it is. I, well, the most remarkable thing about the three-point attempts this year is that Toronto has taken three more threes per game than Golden State. So I, I think the way that we think about Golden State when they were leading the league in three-point attempts you know, you know, for, what, a three-year period or a two-year period until Houston started bombing away is really not right anymore. I mean, uh, the Golden State does not rely all that much on the three-point shot compared to other teams. Now, they shoot it at a higher percentage than Houston. They shoot it at 39% as opposed to a little bit over 36 But you're right, it's just a numbers game with Houston. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? Go for a run, take a nap, maybe check the stats of the latest Miami Heat game? I've got a better idea. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. I've benefited from therapy. I went through some life changes, major life events, had some difficulties, wasn't a believer in therapy, but it helped me and it can help you also. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Miami Heat today to get 10% off your first month. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash Miami Heat. But the other thing with Houston is they get to the line a ton, too, because of Harden. So right. it's not ju- it's not just that they're taking a ton of threes. I mean, everything they're doing is basically threes or at the line. I mean, they're averaging close to 26 free throw attempts per game. Golden State, which, you know, people complain about Golden State getting all the calls. Golden State averages 21. So five more free throw attempts per game, 13 more three-point attempts per And then you look at the assist number, Houston averages nine fewer assists than Golden State. So it's pretty clear what Houston is doing. It's not... It's not a ton of ball movement. It's not. It's basically. It's. It's hard in you know getting in the lane, getting to the basket, getting fouled, or it's sort of taking the best three that you see at that point. 
And that will raise another question here because, you know, we talk about Harden and Paul and their lack of pedigree in, in the playoffs. But Mike D'Antoni has that issue, too, right? Because he had a team in, in Phoenix that, you know, maybe would have gotten to the finals if not for that incident with guys coming off the bench against San Antonio. That was the one year they seemed poised to get there. But but he has not had, I guess, the, t- the playoff success to match the regular season success during his career. And so that's going to be raised with him, too. So I, I think the question is not whether what we're seeing with Houston is real. I think as a regular season team, I mean, they're for real in the same way that D'Antoni's Phoenix teams were for real. I guess it's when you get into a seven-game series with Golden State, and clearly having home court advantage would help there, but, but are you able to carry over these type of numbers, these type of you know three-point you know numbers, these type of free-throw numbers? Are you able to carry them over into a seven-game series with the defending champions? That'll be the big question. Right. Does this style work? Because you basically announced, by virtue of these statistics that we're talking about, they lead the league in three-point attempts by over 400, and then they're third in the league in free-throw attempts. They basically told the league, we know what Daryl Morey's analytics tell us, layups and threes. That's the way to play. Is that too easy to defend against? Because we've seen the difference when you're really able to focus on a team in a playoff series, and that's all you're thinking about, and you're not playing a third game in four nights, and you're not, you know, sort of, you have to cram a, a day's, you know, a whole team's worth of information into a day. When you have a whole series, a whole seven games, a whole two weeks to think about a team, can you figure this style out? I think we saw it in last year's playoffs. To me, the added dimension of Chris Paul does kind of change the math a little bit in terms of he does provide something different. He is willing to take some mid-range jumpers, even if I imagine Daryl Morey is not pleased with it from his executive suite. At the very least, it is something different. Let's get to reason number three to watch the Western Conference for the rest of this year. And, and let's you know make this sort of the other contenders section of the podcast. And who could ruin a Warriors-Rockets Western Conference Finals? Is, is there any team in the West that you think could pull an upset where we don't get the WCF series that we're expecting? Yeah, and I think you're, you're looking at this kind of 3-4-5 territory because of the pedigree and the stars that are on these teams. The one thing I do kind of find interesting as an aside, and we'll get to these other teams in a second, but in terms of the loss column, three and nine are separated by two losses. Mm-hmm. So uh, San Antonio does at the very least have to think about, are we even going to make the playoffs? Which obviously they will, but it is kind of interesting how both, you know, New Orleans has survived in kind of the post-boogie era. The Clippers have kicked on even without Blake Griffin and Portland is doing pretty well along with Denver, but it is those three, four, five that you're seriously considering. I would actually believe it to be Oklahoma City because I think we figured out Billy Donovan, while I don't think he's the greatest NBA coach, does at the very least use the regular season the way that it is meant to be used, which is kind of as a testing ground for trying to figure out the best way to deploy teams. And I really do think that Oklahoma City in the playoffs have figured themselves out, and it really turned in some impressive playoff performances, particularly when you go back to how they competed with Golden State in taking that series to seven games and, frankly, should have won it. And I just think that they will have figured out how to use Westbrook, George, 
and Carmelo in the best way possible. I'm not sure if there's enough around them to really give Houston or Golden State a run, but I just believe in them the most in terms of, obviously, the quality of stars. But I really do trust that over the course of 82 games, they will have figured out how to best sort of deploy themselves. And I just think of those three teams, Minnesota, San Antonio, and Oklahoma City, they have the highest ceiling. So who for you of those three teams would be the most likely to kind of wreck this a little bit? Yeah, I I think it's clearly OKC. You look at the other two teams and both of them have sort of distinct issues, I think, that'll come up in the playoffs. With the Spurs, first thing, it's just impossible to project them right now without Kawhi being in there. So, and how quickly, once he gets back, he gets back up to speed with with everything they're doing. I mean, th- their roster, to me, that's, it's sort of amazing what Pop has done this year because I, I look at their roster without Kawhi Leonard, and I can't really figure out even how they're, what are they, seven games over 500 at this stage, seven or eight. He's uh, so how they're good even, in the regular that, season, man. It's incredible. It, well, especially when he's resting, guys. I mean, it, it's remarkable what they've done because, I mean, what, what are they relying on right now? Uh, you know, they, they Parker came back doesn't have a big role anymore but but came back after a month I mean Aldridge they've gotten much more out of Aldridge obviously than they have the past uh, couple of years but they're still relying to a large degree on Gasol you know Murray I think you and I both like him but uh, he's not you know he's not at the level he's going to be at at this stage and you know Danny Green has has not had a great season so I mean you look at all of their parts and they lost you know a guy in Jonathan Simmons who they developed so they don't have him so you look at the overall depth on this team it's just not where it has been in past years and then you lose you know the fulcrum of everything that you do defensively and then also offensively I never count out the Spurs completely but this is just not one of the better groups that he's had so let's put them to the side Minnesota the Jimmy Butler thing has obviously worked out really well, um, and he's they've, he's given them a go-to player down the stretch, but their clutch numbers are still not great. They're still losing more close games than they should. They've gotten a little better defensively, particularly Towns. Um, they, they they're, have, still, they're still one of the five. Where, I, I'm shocked looking at this. They're one of the five worst teams in the league in defensive rating, which for a Tibbs team is stunning. Well, it, it is. Well, some guys are a little overrated defensively, right? I mean, Wiggins, I, if you looked a little deeper into his numbers, I know he was supposed to be this defensive wizard when he came into the pros, but if you look deeper at his defensive numbers the past couple of years, I mean, they have not been that good. And, and so, you know, that's that's one of your wings there. And Towns, you know, as I said, he's gotten a little better there, but uh, he's much further along offensively than he is defensively. And they look, they added a couple of, of pieces that Tibbs is familiar with, you know, having Gibson up there, but they still, they don't have a ton of great defenders. So I, I think that is the biggest thing that hurts them in the postseason and also sort of the lack of, you know, they need to go through a playoff run together. I, I, you know, they don't have a ton of experience together at this stage. And although Tibbs obviously is, has a lot of playoff experience, I think that hurts them too. So I I look at OKC, you know, in guys in Paul George, Westbrook and Carmelo, who've all been in the postseason in, in Westbrook's case and George's case, they've been deep into the playoffs recently, so I think that that helps. And I look, the thing about OKC that, that I haven't been able to figure out is that at times they, they've looked really good offensively. I mean, go back to the 148 that they put up on the Cavs a few weeks back. Yeah. And then and then you'll also see times where they, they really struggle offensively and struggle with sort of ball movement and, and how to get the ball to the right guy in the right spot. But, but I just on paper – you know, the Thunder project is as the biggest threat to those two teams. I mean, if you were to tell me that, that OKC upset 
Houston in, in, in the second round. Would it be a surprise? Yes, but it wouldn't be a total shocker because I could see Westbrook or George just taking over a series. I don't know that Jimmy Butler is going to do that for Minnesota. And I, again, I don't know what San Antonio has, you know, even if Kawhi comes back, I, I don't know that he's going to be hundred percent this year. I don't know that they have that guy on the roster. Those three teams are flawed. I'm surprised at how bad Minnesota is on defense. San Antonio just doesn't have enough firepower. They're a regular season team at the moment. You just look at the guys that are getting heavy minutes for them. Here are their guys with 1,000-plus minutes. Aldridge, who I think has had a, a career renaissance, frankly, with Kawhi out. I'm not sure those guys coexist very well. Patty Mills, Kyle Anderson, Pau Gasol, Danny Green, Bryn Forbes, and DeJounte Murray. Those are their players that have gotten over 1,000 minutes this season. That's just not enough fire. I'm surprised that they're as good as they are by record. I don't think that they're going to be real competition. And then Minnesota, yes, they have offensive firepower to go with anyone, but they cannot defend well enough. And when you're playing Golden State, when you're playing Houston, you have to be a top defensive team to really get that job done. So I'm not sure if I really trust any of those three teams. All right, Ethan, let's look at kind of the rest of the conference. Uh, we mentioned how tightly packed it is in terms of 6-10 through 10 right now. Denver... Portland, New Orleans, the Clippers, and Utah, who have had a real mm. nice run here, won 11 in a row with Donovan Mitchell really taking off as their kind of star rookie. If you're redrafting this NBA draft, Donovan Mitchell's probably going top three, maybe even top one. When you look at the impact that he's had for an otherwise lackluster team, 11 straight wins. Who of that group right now do you think is really standing out? Yeah, it's look, uh, Utah changes the equation because they were out of this thing uh, about two, three weeks ago. It looked like they were done for this season. It hadn't really replaced Hayward. We're going to lose Rodney Hood, who, who had been a, a big scorer for them this year, had been a big uh, sort of their second option behind Mitchell. But uh, here's the thing about the team. When Rudy Gobert plays, they're really good. Like, I mean, he, he makes a huge difference for them defensively. And, you know, the, look, the they're very streamlined in terms of what they do offensively now, where it's going to go through Donovan Mitchell. I, I think that they're much better coached than they're given credit for. I think Quinn Snyder does a really good job there. I thought he did a really good job last year. And so, look, they're, they're going to be in this thing uh, until the end. And, you know, Derek Favors has an opportunity, too, to sort of prove now that, that he should be a part of their future. And maybe things are a little different financially now that they're not going to resign Hood. You know, I, I think that they're interesting. But when I look at these at least five teams, you mentioned them, uh, Denver, Utah, the Clippers, New Orleans, and Portland. Uh, to me, the team that has the best chance to get to six and maybe even higher is Portland because they have they have two guys that they can rely on here to get hot during the last 25 games. And I know they've overpaid for a lot of the role guys in that team, and that's put them in a really tough spot financially, and that Lillard had a meeting uh, with Paul Allen to kind of discuss the direction of the team. But when you have Lillard and McCollum, you know, guys who can give you 30, I mean, in some cases, 50. That's not something that any of these other teams have right now. And all of these other teams are, are very reliant. I mean, Denver might be a bit of an exception here, although see Jokic, uh, you know, had a huge game last night. But, but if you look at, at Utah, the Clippers, and New Orleans, they're, they're all really reliant on one guy right now to carry them. I mean, with the Clippers, and this has come out of nowhere, but it's it's been Lou Williams. I mean, yeah. especially since since Blake Griffin has been gone. With New Orleans, you know, if they had Cousins, I, I think it would be a given that they'd be in the playoffs and, and maybe even get up as high as five or six. But, you know, and, and Anthony Davis, you know, may be the best player of any of the guys on, on these five rosters, probably is the best player of any of the five uh, on these five teams. But I don't know necessarily that, that they're the best 
best team of this group. And, and Denver, you know, they've gone through, you know, they're going to get Millsap back also. That's the other thing. And, and so you have to see how you reincorporate him. But if I was to say the team that, that finishes the best with the best record of these five and could be a threat in the first round, I, I think it's Portland. But I, would, I wouldn't be stunned if uh, the way that Utah is playing right now, if they end up getting a seven or an eight spot. For me, when I'm kind of looking at these things in terms of having a chance in the first round, it's really about do they have something that gives them a puncher's chance? And I think Denver, particularly, and I know this is very prisoner of the moment, but what they did last night, obviously Jokic having 30, 17, and 15, but offensively they're the seventh best team in the league. Last night they made 24 threes, and I think you just have a balance on the offensive end of the floor. They have so many talented players that I do think in a playoff series, you're going to altitude if you're playing them on the road. I just think that from an offensive point of view, what they can do is give themselves a chance by having one of these incredible three-point games, by turning in one of these incredible Jokic performances. And then with Utah, again, you're reacting to these last 11 games, but they're sixth in the league in defense. So -hmm. in terms of doing something that's important, that is at an elite level, I think they figured out themselves from an offensive point of view by just handing the keys over to Donovan Mitchell and letting him be this incredible young talent. And then on the defensive end, you mentioned with Gobert, they're an incredible defensive team. And so I think they have enough balance. They're elite enough on the defensive end of the floor. And I think with Donovan Mitchell kind of leading the way, they're the team in that group that, for me, would have the best puncher's chance because they do enough of both and they have a thing that makes them elite. All right, let's go to move to the last thing now. Which of the teams in the bottom five of the Western Conference has the best future. Now you're picking from the Lakers, the Memphis Grizzlies, the Sacramento Kings, the Dallas Mavericks, and the Phoenix Suns. And this answer appears very obvious, not just based mm-hmm. off of what they've done recently. You know, the Lakers are 5-5 five and five in their last 10. They're playing a little bit better of basketball. But uh, Memphis have two of the you know biggest and perhaps worst contracts. Not that Mike Conley's a bad player. That's a lot of money to be paying someone who right now is injured and generally is not a difference-making talent. Chandler Parsons might have the worst contract in the league. And then Sacramento is a catastrophe. Phoenix is a catastrophe. And Dallas, they're a well-run organization, but I'm not sure what their plan is going forward. You'd have to say the Lakers, particularly with the ability that they're going to have to make a run at LeBron, are the best position right now. Yeah, no, I think the Lakers are clearly in the best shape. And, and that's even with things not going perfectly for them so far. They, they've played better of late. You know, early in the season, Lonzo, they were, they played better with Lonzo ball. Uh, recently they've played better without him. And so, you know, I, I read the article by Ramona Shelburne on ESPN.com about kind of the ownership of the team changing a little bit in terms of uh, what players they were going to rely on. And we've seen some of those players step up and play well recently. And look, I, I think if you look at the rest of this season, obviously it doesn't matter in terms of where they finish, but they've given themselves uh, with the trade that they made of Clarkson and Nance and Clarkson getting co- off Clarkson's contract, they've given themselves the ability to go out in free agency um, and do something significant this offseason, even if it's not LeBron. They have the flexibility now to take on other contracts if they need to, to make the run at Paul George. They're clear, And they're in, look, they're in the best market of these teams. So uh, there's, there's no question that they're the best positioned going forward. And we've seen progress, you know, Kuzma tailed off a little bit after the hot start and then he's played better of late, but Kuzma looks like a great find for them. And then we've seen some progress from Brandon Ingram. And so, and Josh Hart was a good draft pick as well. So they have the best young core going forward. I think you look at the other four teams 
Dallas is in a weird position because, as Mark Cuban said, they would never tank. I'm not sure what it is they're doing this season. They're 18 and 40. But if you look at them going forward, I mean, who are they building around? Is it going to be Dennis Smith Jr.? What are they going to do with Harrison? Do they view Harrison Barnes as a number one guy, as a number two guy? And then, you know, Dirk is kind of fading into the sunset here a little bit. They've had that draw here over the past couple of years where at least they've had somebody that the fan base, you know, associates with. But I think when you look at the other pieces on that team beyond Dennis Smith Jr., I'm not sure that they have a, a build around piece on that roster. So I you look at the other three teams, Memphis, everything's gone wrong this year, right? I mean, <laughs> whether it was the Fisdale firing and sort of the reaction that that got, we've seen how much they need Mike Conley, but you're right. I mean, even as much as they need him uh, in the current NBA economy, that $30 million a year uh, and it escalates is, is going to look even more ridiculous going forward. So with Memphis, a lot of questions. Is Bickerstaff going to remain the coach there? You know, they're, they're a team, you know, with their front office. They, they relied on sort of a, an, a veteran team that, that won the hearts of the community there for a while. Now, what is their identity going to be going forward? So they're, they're they like Dallas, are, are kind of in a, a tough spot. The other two teams, Chris, I, I think Phoenix has some interesting talent on their roster around Booker and some of the other players. We've seen Josh Jackson look a lot better but they're such a both of those organizations are so toxic right now that's the problem right. i mean the w- the way that sacramento has made trades which you know the way that they handled the cousin situation who's really in charge there that's a question and then phoenix I mean, they've had good players there in recent years, and every single one of them has wanted to get out of there. So it feels like an ownership I, situation. That, that's that's a bad owner in the NBA, and and that can sometimes just cripple a team. It can. I mean, Sarver has been, uh, you know, has had a bad reputation for a long time. Sacramento's ownership situation, I don't think, is looked upon all that much more favorably. No, agreed. Around the league either. So, so you have they're they're clearly the two. I mean, there are other teams that have similar records to them this year, but if you look at point differential, if you look at uh, blowout losses. Uh, they're, they've been clearly the two worst teams in the league this year. So both of those teams I, I look like uh, a big mess right now. And I, it's going to be, I think, at least two or three years before either can get to even mediocre. That, for me, is the big difference when you're trying to pick out promise for the future is do you at the very least have that one player that you can believe can be a transformative figure and uh, you know Sacramento doesn't have it Dallas doesn't have it and I just think that that is the only thing that can give you hope do you have sort of a Philly like collection of assets or do you have that that Donovan Mitchell type Giannis Jokic all these promising young players that have emerged in recent years, do you have one of those guys? I'd say Phoenix right now, of the five teams that we're talking about, is the only one, but Phoenix even has that on the Lakers because I'm not sure the Lakers really have that guy. Yeah, Lonzo Ball is a rookie, and it might be harsh on him to say that, but he hasn't had a Donovan Mitchell-like season, and I think the one problem with this Lakers rebuild has been that they haven't found that guy, although they do have the ability to get a LeBron or use a, 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 a couple of draft picks in, in future years on trying to find that player. But finding that star is still the most difficult thing to do in the NBA. I would still think the Lakers are ahead in terms of the rebuild, but they don't have that player yet. I would actually put Phoenix of the five teams that we're talking about in that kind of tankapalooza territory with the best star. But 
they have probably the worst situation right now in terms of ownership, in terms of the entire situation surrounding the team. That'll do it for this edition of the Five Reasons Podcast. My name is Chris Whittingham. Thanks again to Ethan Skolnick for joining me for yet another edition. We have some ideas in the hopper for next week. We'll have three more podcasts coming up. If you want to check out our edition on the Eastern Conference, the five biggest questions surrounding the Eastern Conference of the All-Star Break, you can check it out on this same feed. Back with more next week. Thanks for joining us on this edition of the Five Reasons Podcast. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.